Good morning, good morning. As we take our uh, morning offering, if you could also pass the friendship books on the outside aisle. If uh, you are brand new to NBC, we'd love for you to go to the guest hub um, where you can get a uh, gift from us, some more information about who we are. We'd love for you to do that. Um, as a church, we're uh, embarking upon a, man, I don't know, several month journey from Genesis to the book of Revelation as we're going through the storyline of Scripture. And uh, that we've been uh, going through the story itself, um, and we've been reading chapter by chapter, and then we speak on those chapter the following week. And so this past week, we read chapter 5, and so now we're going to be diving into this. This is not the entire Bible. It's not a Bible, but it has all the Scripture that, uh, from the Bible that we're going to be teaching on throughout the year. So we encourage folks to not only read through it, but also take notes in it and jump into it. But for those of you um, who are brand new to it, I'm going to give you a little bit of review. And actually, what you can do first off is uh, turn, if you have your book with you that you're taking notes in, go, ahead, go to page 59. Um, and if you've got your Bible, that's Exodus chapter 19. And so we're going to be uh, right there. Uh, but as far as a review, helping you understand where we are, because again, we're cha five chapters in. We started off the whole series um, really focusing in on the book of Genesis, and, and something happened at the very beginning in Genesis that's pretty profound. What, what, was, what happened in the beginning of the Bible? That's right. What's that? Creation. What did you say before that? Did you say Creation. Oh, well, right on. Good job. That's the right answer. So good job. Yeah, Creation. Honestly, 8 a.m. is like, I don't know the right answer to it. It's creation. It, without that, we would not be here. And so creation is a big, big deal. And we, when we're looking at in Scripture, right in chapter 1, we got into the fact that the creation account takes place right over in this region uh, between Iraq and Iran, that area right there. But right away in chapter 1, we realize that human beings, we actually rebel. We break our connection with the, the, the God who gives us life, and all of a sudden, God's punishment comes on the earth. And we, we see that also through the evil and the toxicity of the society in, in Noah's day. And so God has a global reboot, floods the place, and he preserves one family. And the ark resides on Mount Ararat at the end, according to Scripture. And that's like right there in eastern Turkey uh, today. And so, I mean, the ark isn't there today, but that's, that's the region where Mount Ararat is. After that, this family repopulates the planet, and we see um, the next part of Genesis catching up in chapter 2 of the story with Abraham. Abraham's living in um, southeast side of Iraq in a place called Ur, Ur the Chaldeans, and God calls Abraham and says, I'm going to start a nation. And so this is God's Kickstarter campaign to get a nation going, and he's like, you are the one. You and Sarah are going to be the ones that are going to be the heads of this nation, which was pretty cool when you're 70, except for the fact he had no kids, and he's 70. And so God says, just trust me, go with me on this. You're going to have a lot of kids, but you need to follow my lead and trust me. And so he does. He actually follows all the way on over to Canaan and makes his way all the way from Iraq to where Israel is today. And God, in fact, does give him a child. And this child is, uh, you remember what, what his child's name is? Isaac, that's right. And Isaac, is, it's really great. Amazing that God did this. But the problem is, is that he gave, he, gave, um, he gave Abraham Isaac, but then he tells him to sacrifice him, which is not cool. I mean, that's got to be a massive mind trip on the fact that God tells you that you're going to have a great nation that only happens through kids. You and your ancient pushing 100-year-old wife in you have a kid, miracle of miracles, and then God says, okay, take him out. 
And he does so right there where that X is. That's right around where Jerusalem. That's a place where today in Jerusalem um, is a, 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 a section of real estate that's really revered by Muslims and Jews and Christians because traditionally that's the spot where this sacrifice was going to be taking place. And right as Abraham is about to obediently sacrifice his kid, this is going to be a spoiler alert if you haven't read the Bible, he doesn't die. God provides a sacrifice, and it's amazing, and Isaac lives. Isaac has two kids, Jacob and Esau. Jacob's the younger one. Jacob gets the blessing from God and, all, and from his dad, and Jacob has 12 kids, and one of those 12 kids is Joseph, and Joseph is loved by everyone. He's loved by his brothers. They just think he's the bestest. No, they actually, his brothers um, love him so much that they have him human trafficked to Cairo. They sell him to the Arab slave trade, and he gets sold into Potiphar's house in Egypt. And, and when we got into chapter 3, we were talking about the fact that Joseph goes from slave to deputy Pharaoh, the second in command only to Pharaoh. And that only happens if you've done something amazingly huge. And what he did was he obediently followed God's lead in interpreting Pharaoh's dream and saying, we are going to go through seven years of massive, massive economic abundance. We're going to be knocking it out of the park. Everyone's going to be blown away with how abundant we are. And so we need to be saving because we're going to hit a, a recession. It's not going to be a recession. It's going to be a depression. It's going to go, we're going to have seven years of absolute famine. Not just us, but everyone else around us. And so we need to save now. And so all of a sudden, this guy goes from slave to the second in command because he was the one who saved Egypt's tail and turned Egypt into this revered place. And so after that, they're like, man, whatever you want. You, you have family, let your family come in here. And so his family all move in and they move um, south side of Cairo, which is Goshen. And so they all, they all go there and they start to populate, and get more and more and more, which the next pharaoh wasn't a huge fan of. It, it, like the, the whole epic thing that Joseph did wasn't on his watch, so he didn't care. And this, all these people are so numerous that they're freaking out that they're going to rob them of their culture or they're going to join an enemy if an enemy combats them. And so they're like, this is not, this is not good. We need, to, we need to put these people down. So the first thing they try is slavery. That doesn't work. They continue to populate. Then the next thing they say is, okay, every boy that's born, throw him into the water and drown him so that we'll at least weed out their ability to procreate. So after 430 years of that type of an existence, all of a sudden God raise up, raises up Moses and Moses brings in deliverance. He actually evacuates them out of Egypt. They cross over the Red Sea to the base of Mount Sinai where we are this week on talking about new commands and a new covenant. Now this is the thing. You can't think of these people as, as just like, oh man, these people are all well-adjusted folks that are ready to, to be a part of their own country. Yeah, they've been enslaved for... 430 years, but they're totally ready for this. They're not. Think of them as almost like children who've been dictated their whole life, and now they have all this freedom, zero structure, and they have no understanding of who they are. And so God does what any, what any good parent does, which is to give them that structure and help them know who they are. Um, one of the most traumatic things that can happen to a kid is getting lost. How many of you guys um, got lost when you were a little kid, like you wandered away or you got lost in a mall? Or, or, okay, hold up your hands real high. Okay, wasn't that the worst? Like, I mean, it was awful. Ser like, the, one of the worst that it happened to me all the time. It was terrible. And like, I, and it's one of those things where I remember how, especially in the decade I grew up in, which was the 80s, 
Lost or kidnapped kids all of a sudden became a big deal. Like, people didn't care in the 50s and 60s, not at all. But in the 80s, all of a sudden, they started, like, checking people's, like, you know, Halloween candy because there's razor blades in there. And, I mean, again, before that, it was like, just chew harder. Just, it's fine. But in the 80s, parents were like, I don't know, my kid, this is, they're fragile, and we need to, they're going to get kidnapped. And even though kidnapping had been taking place for a long time, all of a sudden, there's a heightened reality. This is me in 1983 with my, a couple of my siblings. That's me on the far right. That's my brother, Josh. That's, I think, the last time he hugged me like that. There's my sister, uh, Sarah. And Sarah's hair is super short because she found some craft scissors that she um, went to town on her hair with. And there's my dad. And that's, I think, in, in, uh, in uh, Zion National Park, I think. Anyway, right around that, that's 83. Um, within a year or two of that picture, I remember going into a Kodak film developing store. And that sounds archaic, doesn't it? But, but in, that, in that Kodak film developing store, they had uh, this new concept of helping kids who got lost by videotaping them. And so they, they got like a VHS camera and they like just had you stand up almost like a, you know, a thing where, with you know, your height and everything. And then they asked you a couple of questions. And, and the questions that I remember them asking is, what's your name? What's your favorite color? And my, my name is Errol. Favorite color is blue. What's your favorite TV show? The A-Team. Um, what, what, how old are you? And I told him my age. And, I, and honestly, there's very few things that I would pay good money for, but I would pay good money to get my hands on that VHS because it is a legendary in my family. To this day, my brother and I mock my sister because of her answer. She didn't even know how old she was. She's just throwing out numbers. Seven, six, Josh on the side, three, three. Hey, you know, what's your favorite movie or TV show? Pete's Wagon. And, it was, and we, we would I'm 40 years old, I'm still making fun of my sister. But that v VHS was intended that if one of us got kidnapped or one of us got lost, on, on NBC or KTLA or, or one of the, the, the local news stations, they could put this VHS on to let us know this kid knows who he is, this is what he sounds like, these are some of his likes, etc. It was important for parents to let you know who you are in case you ever got lost. And if you ever got separated, how you could find mom and dad. If you go to Disney, how many of you have been to Disney World? Okay, with, ki with kids, okay. Okay, when, I didn't, I've never been to Disney World, but my family, would go to Disneyland, okay, because I grew up in L.A., and I remember as we would get into Disneyland, my parents would always just say, okay, if we get separated, which was, a, I mean, a good chance, especially with my siblings, we would just, yeah, if we get separated, we're going, you, you can find us at the Mexican restaurant in Frontierland, because Mexican food is always my family's true north. That's where we're going to rendezvous. That's where you're going to find us. And so we always knew if we got separated, where to go. But on top of that, um, how to, if one gets lost, how to find their way actually back home. One of the most traumatic points of my childhood was on a hike in Big Sur, in the, in the mountainous region of Big Sur. I got separated from the group. I'm fourth grade, third, fourth grade. And um, I, was, I was lost for, for several hours where I was just, panicking and desperate. And, and the thing that, that scared me, and I, I'm, I'm serious, I'm like, a, I'm a little third, fourth grader, and I'm just crying because I don't know where my mom and dad are, and I have no way of knowing how to get back home. So what is God doing at Mount Sinai? He's talking to his kids, and he's communicating to them exactly how they can know who they are, how to find God, and, and how to get their way back home through the law the tabernacle, and the sacrificial system. That's what we're going to be looking at today.
If you've got your uh, storybooks, you can go to page 59. If you have your Bibles, you can go to actually to Exodus chapter, uh, go to Exodus 19, not 20, starting off here. And on, on page 59, um, I underlined this section because this is huge. When God's talking to Moses, he says this. It's about halfway down the page. He says this, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, I did, did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully, and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So what is God saying? You need to know who you are. You're mine. I'm the one who rescued. I brought you out like on, on eagle's wings. I, I'm the one who, who's your savior. You are mine. And, and then he continues speaking in this relational way when we jump to the uh, two pages over in, on 61, about halfway down. If you have your Bibles, that's, that's um, uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. God says this. Listen to, the, the, again, the relational words he's using. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then he starts to speak to them about the Ten Commandments. Now, have, have you ever heard of the Ten Commandments? Yeah, of course, everyone's heard about the Ten Commandments because, we, again, we know Charlton Heston. Ten Commandments are, are a, were a big deal for them. And we talked about this when we were going through Leviticus in the summer, that um, it's, it's framed like a Hittite treaty. The Hittites had this treaty with Egypt where they're like, okay, we're, we're going to have peace. But here's all of the, the, the stipulations within our peace treaty. And it was like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, too many to memorize. So what they did was they shrunk it down to like 10 principles that summarize all these massive laws. Well, the Ten Commandments are like that. There's 633 laws that God gave to Moses at Mount Sinai, shaping the way that their world was going to be as a nation following him, not the Pharaoh. 633. There's no way that they could memorize all that. So what God does is he, he, does, he shrinks it down to 10 summary statements of the 633. So it's kind of like a Hittite peace treaty, but it's also like a wedding covenant. Um, it, when you were married, you said vows, and you don't remember any of them, Right? But in the Hebrew world, these vows were not just something that you were repeating after the pastor. I did two weddings yesterday. I guarantee you, the people I did the weddings for do not remember the vows that they just spoke 24 hours ago. But if they were crafted uniquely for the person, they might. In the Hebrew culture, what they would do is this. They'd take the first part of their wedding vows, and they would be all written out. And they'd be how we relate as a couple. Okay, so like things that are unique to us. Okay, so here's the thing. On game day, I have to have the couch. I have to. Are you cool with that? Good. Okay, right. Sign it in. All right, so there'd be stuff like between us that they would be agreeing on. That was the first half of the wedding agreement. But the last half of the wedding agreement was how we, because we're not just going to be like hermits. We're going to interact with other people. We need to know how we're going to operate as a couple relating to everyone else. So you would, the last part would be things like, Okay, when there's a block party on our street, we're going to be out there, we'll be with everyone, but we're going to go, come inside at 1030 because we know that after 1030 on our street, things just get sketchy. And so that's, okay, good, we're writing that in. Okay, Thanksgiving, as soon as your dad brings up politics, I'm out. Okay, let's write it in. And so the last half was all about how we deal with everyone else, and the first half was how we deal with each other. And we see that in the Ten Commandments. The first commandment is talking about how this is an exclusive relationship. Take a look at that, and that's again in that passage there, or on page 61, about halfway down. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. What this is communicating is this. God is saying, this is like a wedding covenant. 
This is not an open relationship. This is not something where, where, where I'm cool with you having me as your God and any other gods you, you tack on to the trade. It's just me and you. Uh, this is exclusive. I am the Lord your God. There are no other gods. This is an exclusive relationship. The second commandment is saying, I'm a person, not an object. The second command is, you shall not make for yourselves an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. What's God saying? Parents, if you minimize me to an object and not a person, something that you can carve out and hang on the wall, that's going to cause a distance between me and you. And that's going to mess us up. But worse, not only are you going to incur the punishment of that distance between you and me, your kids are going to watch that. And they're going to grow up hating me. And that's going to incur that massive distance of punishment between me and them. So listen, I am not like all these other fake gods that you can carve out and hang on your wall or worship and pray down or, whatever, or say prayers to. I am real. I am a person, not an object. Don't craft something in my image and pray to it. Thirdly, my name is for communicating, not commandeering. The third uh, commandment is you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. This is the, the famous one of don't use the, the Lord's name in vain. And above and beyond just, you know, you know saying um, like God's name is a curse word, the, the depth of what this is talking about is this. God is identifying that every world religion at that point and afterwards has commandeered whatever deity that they worship, whatever, whatever person that they say, I'm worshiping this God, as a power play that is oppressive. People have said, I'm doing this in the name of God. That's why I'm attacking you. God is on our side. That's why I'm going to murder you. God is against this. So, and what people have done in every world religion has they've commandeered a deity's name and misused it for their own agenda. And God is saying, don't do that. Do not do that. My name is for communicating. When God says to Moses from the burning bush, I, you can call me the I am or Yahweh or Jehovah. When he's saying that, that is the first time in the Bible that we have a name for God. And all of a sudden, God's saying, this is a big deal, but this is for you to communicate with me, not for you to use it for your own agenda. Don't commandeer my name. Use it for communicating. Fourthly, take a day off each week to enjoy our relationship. Why? Because God knows that we're workaholics. You're either going to be a workaholic or you're going to work for a workaholic. Am I right? And the reality is, is that every human being, whether you're a, a boss or you're a worker that's getting a salary, you have it in your mind, if I just work one more day. You know what? I could buzz through a week of working seven days and I'm going to get more pay on that. I'm going to get a side job. I'm going to do this, this, and this. And God is saying, you do that and you're going to burn yourself out. You do that, you're going to burn your employees out. Don't do that. Work your tail off for six days. Have a high work ethic. Put in all that you can. But there's a day that you hit the reset button and you stop. Sabbath literally means stop. Cease working and hit the reset button and take a moment just to enjoy. Take a breath. Appreciate the fact that God has gifted you with, with people in your life that you love. Take a breath to, to, to have a moment where you get a chance to appreciate the, all the blessings that God has given you. Gather with God's people and worship, but stop. And God, in doing that, has saved us from the, that workaholic cycle that every culture that wants just to get a little bit ahead 
falls into. That's the first part of the list that relates to us and God. But he jumps to the next part that says this. He starts dealing with the relationship between us and everybody else. And if you see on that page, that next commandment, it's the very famous commandment of you shall, or I'm sorry, next one is honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You know this one. You, if you're a parent, you probably have quoted this to your kid. But when, when you look at that word honor, when I was studying it this week, it's deeper. It's multi-layered than more than just like honor them. Make sure if it's mom's day, send a card. It's deeper than that. And, and the word actually can, can uh, one of the aspects of the word talks about prizing. I've never heard prize used as, a, as a, like a verb, but it's prizing your parents. Actually prize them. Now, how many of you are um, in college um, or younger? If you're in college or younger, just raise your hand. Okay. Okay. Let me just tell you guys something. You know why God put that in there to honor your parents? Because it's not natural and it's not easy. The reason that God said to honor your parents is because your parents are really hard to honor sometimes. Am I right? And all the parents are like, no, well, my parents, yes, but not me. Yes, it's, I'm telling you, as a parent, one of the things that's so easy is, is, as a parent, I know that I have acted dishonorably. I have done things that aren't warranting my kids' respect. And God is saying, do your parents deserve honor and praise and prizing them? Not all the time. But I want you to do it anyway. But why? Because you're mine. You're mine. And you expressing grace to a parent who's frail and faulty is the same grace that I'm expressing to you. Prize your parents. Appreciate them. If you're an adult and you're out of your house, I want to encourage you to, to make a phone call. If your parents are still alive, make a phone call today. Call them. Communicate that you appreciate them. Tell them thank you. Some of you are doing it right now. Good job. Um, tell them thank you. Like, I'm going to forget this. Thank you. And perhaps even apologize to them. And that might be one of the hardest phone calls today. But I want to challenge you to do it anyway. Why? Because they deserve it? No, not necessarily. But because you're his. Prize your parents. Next one is don't murder. That's pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> Seventh, don't poison your marriage by, or anyone else's with adultery. And this is where um, the Ten Commandments start saying, when we're dealing with other people, it's natural to humanity to take something that's not yours and poison every relationship you have. And so within adultery, this is an idea of robbery. You're robbing someone else's marriage and you're robbing your own. When you poison someone else's marriage or your own, this is, this is not sustainable. This actually causes the toxicity that's not just easy just to, to fly, fly through. This is absolutely, ridiculously hard. Don't poison your marriage or anyone else's with adultery. Don't take what isn't yours. That, that's the famous command of do not steal. And as much as you, all of us in here are like, well, I do not steal. It is natural within, natural within humanity to take stuff that's not ours. Right now, over in the nursery, an adventure outpost over there, those kids are ripping each other off. Right now. If we had a video camera, we could watch it. It's your kid. I mean, they're ripping other kids off because it's like easy to go. And if you think that you're over that because you're out of the nursery, Today when you're watching the game, today when you're watching TV, watch the commercials. And you're going to be like watching the commercials going, I want that. And, you're, and that's what's going to happen. You always want to have something. And, and, and God is saying, listen, as natural as that seems, as natural as it seems to be uh, someone who cheats to get ahead or find a loophole, don't take what isn't yours. Be honest. 
This is like the idea of not having false witness, and, but that extends beyond that to being a truth teller. So when you say something, everyone else can second guess everyone else around you, but when they, they're listening to you, they're listening to someone who's got, one of God's kids. And because of that, they don't have to like second guess whether or not you're telling the truth or not because you're known to be a truth teller. Be honest. Don't fixate on the stuff other people have that you do not. And that's where, that's that, that 10th commandment, which says this, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. It is, again, natural for us to look at what other people have and say, if I only had that, I probably would be happy. If I only had that, that, those clothes, I probably would be happy. If I only had that job or that income or that house or that significant other, I would be happy. No, you probably wouldn't because those people aren't really happy either, no matter what they post on Facebook. Don't fixate on the stuff other people have that you do not. Now listen, if you're not a Christian, let's just be honest. If all the Christians you knew actually fleshed this out, at least the right column, That'd be pretty awesome, wouldn't it? If these are people that you don't have to worry about lying to you or trying to take your stuff or being a cheat, people that, that aren't like in their heart just like just hating you with all their guts, that'd be pretty amazing. And God says this is part of the package of people who are, are saying I am their God. This is the relational side of loving God and loving others. That is who we are. And secondly, we can know where to find him. Because one of the things that we recognize is that our tendency when we feel, when we recognize that we've sinned is to run away from God or feel like God is coming with his wrath to punish us. And one of the things that we see in, in this part of, of God trying to educate his people is this. I want you to know that you are never, ever alone. And you can know that by the fact that I'm going to have the tabernacle. The tabernacle, I'm omnipresent, I'm everywhere, but I'm going to have a significant presence in that tent, the Holy of Holies. And when you set up your camp, because you're nomads right now, you're wandering, when you set up camp, this is the first tent that goes up. This is the first structure that goes up. And all of your community, all the whole community was built, built and based around it. And people forever could see like the smoke coming out the top knowing that God's presence is uniquely in this location. I mean, so much so uh, that, that it was a proximity to God, but it was also recognition that God is distant from us in holiness. Because inside that tent, there was this curtain that, was the, uh, that separated everyone from the Holy of Holies. There's, you could only go a certain bit. And on one day of the year, Yom Kippur, could, people, could the high priest go behind there, the Holy Holies, to make a sacrifice. So this was God's proximity and helping them know that he's right there with them. It was kind of a way that they had um, this, this kind of like um, this mini uh, mobile worship tent, uh, a mobile worship tent where they could honestly always know that no matter how scary it is that we're surrounded by people who want to kill us, God's right here. As, as, as much as we feel insecure in ourselves, God is right here. And it was like a way to have a mini Eden reborn for them, a, a recognition that even though we're in the desert and in the wilderness, God is with us. We know where to find him. He's right there. He's right there. And, and this thing was super ornate. Um, I love the commentary in the story in this passage. It says that yet, when it's talking about all the furniture for this location, it says, yet the most awesome and important feature of this portable temple was not the furniture that filled it, but the person who filled it. The fact that people, again, could know God is right there. Who you are, where to find me, and finally, when you fail. When you break our covenant, how to find our way back home. 
And in the, in the laws that God gives Moses at Mount Sinai, part of it is the sacrificial system, which sounds super barbaric to us in 2017. But basically, this was the idea. When I choose to rebel from God, I have broken, broken the relationship with the person who gives me life. I have broken my relationship with the author of life. And because of that, death is coming for me. I'm going to die. I'm going to be separated from him because I have chosen that. Except, God says, but I don't want that to be the end of the story. Death has to come because you have broken your relationship with the author of life, but it's going to come through a sacrifice. Now, this sacrifice didn't do anything to warrant this, but this sacrifice, this animal, is going to take your place. And so what they would do is they'd bring a lamb, and the priest, as he's about to um, cut the throat of this animal, he put his hand on the forehead, symbolically saying, that this person's sin is now on this animal and the debt has been paid. Now, as messed up as that sound, the whole world is do, was doing sacrifices to appease the gods at the time. What was God doing? You know exactly how much I'm asking for and no more. You don't walk away thinking you're still feeling guilty, you're still feeling shame, so maybe you need to bring more sacrifices or maybe you need to sacrifice your own blood or maybe you need to sacrifice your own children. No. With me, it's a prescribed amount and you walk away without shame and without guilt because it has been atoned. It has been covered over. A.W. Tozer said this, the more I learn the sin of my own heart, the more I want to know God's grace. The fact that this God doesn't merely just expel me, but he makes a way for me to come forward. The old covenant, that was what the old covenant was all about. Letting God's kids know who you are where to find me, and how to make your way back home. But this is where it gets good. Because when we see what Jesus has done, we recognize something. Jesus is the way back home. Uh, when Jesus, right, the night before he, he was crucified on the cross, he starts talking about the blood that, that's necessary for the covenant. But he's talking about a new covenant. And he says this, this is my blood. Not the blood of an animal, not your blood. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. When, when uh, Jesus' cousin saw him before he started his ministry, this is how he described him. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the way back home. We don't do sacrifices anymore because the sacrifice was finished with Jesus on the cross. But not only that, Jesus also made the place God dwells us. It's not a, it's not a tabernacle. It's not a temple. It's not even a church. Jesus made the place where God dwells, not a location where I could point over there, that's where God is, but he actually authored the way that he made us the temple. He made us the tabernacle. He made us the place where God dwells. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, don't you know that you yourself are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you, you, to get all of you, you together are that temple. When you're in a place where you do not know where God is and you're going through some sketchy, dark periods of your life and you're like, where is God now? If you're in Christ, he is with you. You are never alone. Do you know where God is? Yes, he's right with you. He has made his tabernacle your own life. And not only that, 
we see that Jesus said that the law is love. Just as much as Moses consolidated 633 laws into 10 for us through God's inspiration, Jesus actually takes that 10 and consolidates it into two. And it's amazing because it's the two categories we already talked about in the Hebrew wedding covenant. Jesus replied when asked what the greatest commandment is. Of all the 633, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. So loving God, that was the first column. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, which is the second column. All the law and the prophets hang, all the law and all the prophets of the prophets hang on these two commands. So all 633 can be consolidated into love, loving God and loving others. The faith, if you're a Christian, the faith that you uphold can be summarized in that reality of divine love that God has authored and he's established. This is not the old covenant any longer. Jesus authored the new. And, and the, the new covenant is built and based not on us and our track record, how good we are, how moral we are. It's actually built and based on the fact that Jesus is the one who made the sacrifice. He's the one who actually established the final sacrifice. Jesus is the one who established our heart to be a place where God's Holy Spirit dwells. And Jesus showed us the best picture of God, loving God, and loving man on the cross. That's the greatest commandment. Love God and love others. And Jesus showed us what that looks like. And here's where it gets cool. Mo well, this first part's not cool. Mo uh, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai. This first part's terrible. That Moses comes down from Mount Sinai with the law. God gives him the law, right? This is 50 days after Passover. And God gives him the law, the Ten Commandments. And when he gets down to, at the bottom of the hill, what does he see? He sees people worshiping, his brother leading the worship to, to Baal, the, 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 this golden calf, Right? And he takes the wedding covenant and he smashes it because they just broke the wedding. This is, this is so audacious. This is the picture. This is the picture of, of uh, after your wedding, going to your honeymoon suite and seeing your new spouse in bed with someone else and the wrath that would rage in your heart. And God, God's wrath in that moment is so huge. And God actually doesn't punish the whole group. He actually just punishes those who are participating. And it says on that day, the day that God gave the law, 50 days after the Passover, 3,000 people died. The 3,000 people who were all orchestrating that worship, they died that day. This is why that's interesting. Because Jeremiah, later on in the Old Testament, says something's happening here. God's cooking something up. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Okay, again, this is in the Old Testament. This isn't New Testament yet. The, the days are coming when I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant. Though I was like a husband to them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. On tablets? On stone? No. Within them. And I will write it on where? Their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Fast forward to Jesus. Jesus dies on the cross and rises again. That last supper that was right in the Passover time, right? 50 days later, where are the disciples? After Jesus rose from the grave. They gather together at this festival called Shavuot. Shavuot is celebrating the fact that Moses got the law from, Mount, from God on Mount Sinai, that God loved us enough to make this wedding covenant with us. He gave us his law. And so they celebrate that. They don't celebrate the 3,000 people dying, but they celebrate the fact that God gave this law to people. 
And on that day, the Holy Spirit is given to anyone who has been forgiven by Jesus as the indwelling person who writes, as Jeremiah said, God's law on our hearts. Wherever we go, God is indwelling us. Peter emerges from that room and there's a bunch of people mocking, a bunch of haters out there that are mocking him and everyone else because of what they're talking about. And Peter preaches the gospel to them. And on that day, celebrating the anniversary of Mount Sinai when God gave the law, where how many people died? 3,000. On that day, the New Testament records how many people were saved? 3,000. We see in Scripture God talking about how through the law we can see our death, but in Jesus, all of a sudden we get a chance to recognize that we have life. That, that, that barrier of, of the tabernacle has been broken. When Jesus died on the cross, the curtain was, was torn in two, and now the Holy of Holies is within us. And this is the reason why this is important. Because whether you're eight years old or you're 80 years old, as humans, we wrap our identity and our self-worth in stuff that fails us. We wrap our identity around relationships, relationship statuses, whether you're single or married or, or hooked up with somebody, whether or not you've got a great job or a lame job, whether or not you've got a great salary or a, or a terrible salary, whether or not you've got stuff or, or you, you're, you're watching the commercials wishing you had it. We wrap our identity around these things, and when we succeed, we are ecstatic, and we love it, and it's wonderful. And when those things that we've wrapped our identity around fail, and they always do, relationally or otherwise, we are devastated because all of our self-worth is leaning on the identity of those things. So what is God saying to us at Mount Sinai today? Your identity is not in any of those things. Your identity is in who you are in me. The fact that you know where to find me and that when you fail, not if, but when you fail, you, there's a way back home. Jesus has made that way. Our identity rests in him. Amen? Amen. Let's stand for prayer. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for the fact that you did author the way back home. God, I thank you for not giving up on your people, on humanity, even though we give you every reason to do so. We thank you for not doing that. God, I pray that this morning as we exit this building, that we'll exit this building as people who know who they are, first and foremost as your kids. Lord, I pray that that transformation that you do in, within us extends to our words and our thoughts, maybe extends to healing conversations that take place even today. And God, when we see that, we will give you the thanks and the glory for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. See you next week.